Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners. It's Nicole Giantonio, the founder of Left Foot, and I'm here to announce that our 12 audio-based business development challenges are now available. 12 practical, execution-oriented steps to predictable success. Part of the Left Foot GPS growth practice solutions for business development. Go to leftfoot.com GPS for details. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest ensures her organization has effective advice and representation working on legal issues related to construction, contracts, corporate transactions, real estate, labor and employment law, as well as intellectual property matters. General Counsel, SVP, and Secretary, Hunter Roberts Construction Group, Lisa Howlett, welcome to Left Foot. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right into our questions. Which of your personal strengths or habits have allowed you to be successful in transitioning to an in-house legal environment? I think more than ever for an in-house attorney, the skills of listening and being responsive are key. You have to be able to communicate and really listen to what a business person is saying because it's definitely a different language than in the legal arena. I know you had other roles where you were in-house. Did you find that that was challenging for you or was that just something that came natural? Have you studied business in the past or was it mostly curiosity? I would say that some of my formative years being at a big firm where it was business centric was really helpful in that training to understand the language and the lingo. I do think, you know, my father was in the business and took me on business meetings. So I did have that kind of exposure at an early age, which definitely helps short circuit some of the learning steps that other people may have to endure to be able to make those connections a little bit easier great response. You've obviously watched it. There's interest. You've had a long career in working on both sides of the fence, let's say it that way, as an attorney for a firm. And then of course now in-house, you know, during that time and, and definitely in your current role as lawyers, outside counsel, outside legal operations, outside legal tech firms, as people are approaching you, are you seeing strong skills in those partners you're working with specific to actually understanding your business? And have you been able to select counsel that possibly have worked with other firms in your industry? Is that your approach? You know, what is really that, that criteria you look for in those outside counsel and, and outside providers? I think that it's really interesting that when you're looking, particularly from an in-house perspective, the perspective is so different than when I was in the private firm. What I thought they wanted until I went on the other side, I had, it takes that kind of clarity. There is a need for a deep trust. There is a risk factor that any in-house counsel has saying, hey, CEO, you're just going to spend a lot of money and these people are going to be great and they're going to get us out of this issue or they're going to help us negotiate a good deal. So there's a lot of risk, a personal, professional risk that the in-house person takes placing that bet on the outside firm. So that means you have to have a high level of trust and that high level of trust comes in a lot of ways. And one of them is that that outside counsel is sensitive to your needs in terms of providing not just a good service, but a good service in an efficient manner. Because if the bills get too high and they don't see the value, your job is on the line. Establishing trust, you know, what does that look like? How have outside legal counsel that you're working with, how have they been able to establish trust with you? Is that always over time? Are there some suggestions you can make to our listeners about how to establish that trust effectively? 
Yeah, I would say that there's a couple of ways to do that. As an in-house counsel, you can't just rely on the people you've always known. You always have to be open, and I always am open, to meeting new folks. If there is a degree or two of connection, that is very helpful. So that means for an outside counsel, it is good for them to have a lot of connections. And I don't mean Rolodex connections like meet and greet. They have to really know these people so that when I say, is she good? Does she get it? You want to be able to have someone who has a, a more in-depth relationship to understand really how they perform and how they interact. And second, when they talk to me, they got to know, I got to come prepared and really know as much as they can about my business and then be transparent about what they don't. I do not mind taking on people who can provide me more affordable services if I have to devote some time to them, if I think they have the aptitude, the interest and the caring, then I'm, I'm all good with that. So those are the really key things that I think lead to success for an outside counsel. You can't just take someone out for lunch. Days of lunches, I don't have time for lunches, I'll be honest with you. It's, it takes too much of my time. I do need to have the connection with them and it doesn't necessarily, it could be, I have to go to seminars anyway. I have to get CLE anyway. Run something for me. Invite me for a breakfast where I'm actually going to get CLE at the same time or address something that I really need to know about or connect me with somebody. It's great when you can connect me with an in-house counsel at an architectural firm that I may be negotiating against one day. And frankly, we may do referrals to each other business-wise for our companies. Those are all the most valuable things that an outside counsel can do. Terrific response. Thank you for sharing. And I have to say, I am so happy when general counsel, in-house counsel come on our program and talk about the fact that it is not about a social relationship. Those relationships and or a social event that ends up, you know, turning into a business relationship, those things are almost more comfortable down the road, right? When you're celebrating something. And we've actually had general counsel say they feel obligated when they're invited. If they, you know, it's current counsel and they they want to be nice, they say yes. And they're like, I don't have time. And you're taking me away from my families. That idea that you're engaging with me, is it helpful to me? Is it helpful to my organization? To your point, let's go to a CLA course together. Let's make that connection that could be valuable to our firm. Terrific point. And thank you for sharing that. Let's kind of back up to that cost point that mentioned earlier. We talk about value on our program a lot and really how as an in-house counsel, you're able to, especially as your role as a leader, you're able to evaluate if this outside firm lawyer at a particular firm or a technology that you might want to consider or an outsourcing provider, if they are going to provide value to your firm. Do you have any kind of rules for the road? Do you always look for, first off, do you have legal purchasing? Do you always look for competitive bids? How are you determining value? Is there something specific that you're doing? Yeah, I am looking for as much cost certainty as I can get. So I do put out RFPs for major cases or engagements. Otherwise, I will start small with, uh, I went, I'll test out a firm and just see how they're doing. But what I am finding, I'm in the jurisdiction of New York City a lot. I also have a Philly office. I'm finding that oftentimes in the New York market, which needs to be addressed, is there's an, a lack of flexibility that I am finding with attorneys outside the metropolitan area and happen to be admitted to New York. So I bring them up because they will negotiate the rates. They won't just say, nope, it's just this rate and that's what it is. They will entertain, okay, we'll share success. 
So you will pay up to my hour for hour fees up to a not to exceed. And then if there's, we'll share in the success or they'll take it on pure contingency. They will engage with me in ways that will make it worth it for me to go pursue a claim that I wouldn't otherwise, because I can't afford it if I need to use an inflexible New York attorney who says, nope, and I got to bill you all this and it's got to be the legal assistant and, and the copying time. I don't want to see all that in a bill. I really just don't want to see all that. It's just, I don't have the capacity even to analyze those kind of bills, particularly for, unless I, you have a major huge legal department. You don't have the ability to analyze that kind of billing. Right. And you have an obligation, of course, to the other business leaders within your firm to be looking for that flexibility for you know something that, that you can plan for or budget for, right? That there is a certain cost. So some, having some of that predictability. We've had a number of guests come on and talk about really looking at matters at this point from an outcomes perspective. And I'll give an example. We had a guest come on and say that for every significant matter, they basically have each firm that's bidding to assist with that matter present them with the potential outcome. Of course, they don't have all the information, which is always the, <laughs> the point, but they have some information. They're saying, okay, which direction would you take? And what do you expect the cost will be? Have you done something like that? It kind of sounds like, you know, that flexibility that that would be a good approach possibly to take with when evaluating through those RFPs. When you have found firms that are being flexible, how have you evaluated those firms against each other? So I do have matrix that I establish for any particular engagement when it's an RFP. How much, and I kind of break it down. How much are you anticipating spending on discovery? Are you planning on doing in-house electronic discovery? Those kinds, I try and break down all the components because sometimes what I will do, I will say, hey, will you engage with me that your electronic discovery is way too expensive? And what I have been able to do because I have a fairly sophisticated IT department, we have been able to bypass some of the providers that go to law firms, which are super expensive. And what we've been able to do is go to the platform provider and get it for a fraction of the cost. We then skinny down what my attorneys look at. Not everyone is that flexible. So that I try and create some of these, what we consider more creative ways to cap costs, because frankly, I'm paying for their expertise. I'm not paying for their legal assistance to sit and look at documents. If I can do it cheaper, let me do it cheaper. So I'm looking for them to engage with me with that. As far as predicting outcomes, I also have an obligation because we are, although we're not a public firm, we're audited like one. So there are these audit letters that our outside auditors provide that do ask our attorneys for risk assessments. If I have one document that says, eh, you only have a 50-50 chance, and then they send to an auditing company, we have great defenses. The reserve only needs to be X, Y, and Z. It creates a conflict. So I need to be careful about asking about outcomes. In one instance, they may want to not exaggerate the outcome, and then the other one they do to protect themselves. So that can get really dicey. That is usually a conversation. Give me an idea of how much I may win in perspective to how much this may cost me. You're not telling me, oh, you have a 50-50 shot. You're saying this is how much you can get. This is more realistic. And I have them give me ranges. At least then you can look at the alternatives and you can make a decision on whether or not to go forward. And I think that's really more of what we're hearing. I have to say, I love the fact that to your prior point that you're helping the firms you're working with be more efficient with you by saying, we'll do the discovery and we'll present you with the data as long as they're comfortable with that process and, and really looking at those alternatives. Those are all great. I would say, frankly, that's the first time I've actually heard someone come out and actually say that. You know, we, we hear a lot of our in-house counsel say they're going to handle it in-house, but that idea that you could partner with them to be more efficient, which I think is terrific. That's a great point. 
And now a word from our sponsor, Nicole here, and a shout out and thank you for tuning in to the Left Foot Podcast. Are you looking to energize your business development efforts? Our 12 Left Foot Business Development Challenges will energize your efforts in three areas. Business Development Grit, tactical habits that lead to business development success, including networking, nailing your niche, how to focus and develop an expert reputation, commercial savoir-faire, a discussion on business and the revenue side of law. At Left Foot, we believe 20% of people are natural at business development, 10% say no to business development, and 70% are neutral and can adopt the skills necessary when presented in an organized, methodical way. To learn more and be challenged, go to the GPS page at leftfoot.com. Lisa, most of our listeners, which are breaking the 50,000 mark this week, which is pretty exciting. Most of our listeners are partners in law firms, not associates, some are associates, but the majority are partners. And they really are looking or listening in to hear how they can change their approach or they can begin this process of business development if they're newer partners. Can you share a success story where a partner came in and was able to work with you on a matter, on a project, or become you know a firm of record with your organization where they did all the right things in establishing that relationship? and continuing to grow that relationship? Well, I think from the partner's perspective, the ones that are most successful for me are the ones that are not selfish. And what I mean by that is I rely on them for the expertise. I rely on them maybe for that capstone opinion, but I don't want them doing a lot of legwork. I don't want to see their hours on my bill. I want the cheaper associate who's bright, who is in and I see as the up and coming because that partner is not going to be there all the time. I would rather develop a relationship with some of the more junior folks on their staffs because like I said, they're more cost effective. They're more likely to spend the time to learn about me. They're more likely to be more flexible in addressing how I want them to approach things. And then they can always go back and check with the partner. And then I get that little seal of approval, but I get it more, I think, efficient and it's certainly a cheaper proposition. And it's difficult for me when I have these partners that want to do everything. There's only certain cases when you need partners to do everything. And that's where it's really, I don't even know when that is, frankly. If I'm at the end of a contract negotiation, I want to bring in a heavy hitter to say, you are completely wrong in that, in what terms you're requesting. And here, I'm going to give you, you know, the most experienced person on the block, but that's rare. You know, it's, it's interesting. So you are having those conversations and, and I can relate to this in a lot of levels. A lot of times we hear that the firm is kind of dictating who the client should be working with. I love the idea that you're saying, no, our choice is to work with that fourth year associate to work with the associate team and, you know, contact you. And have you ever had pushback as a firm said, no, we're not going to work with you the way that you want to work with us? Yeah. And I just stop. I just don't use them as much. And I go to the ones who are going to address my needs. And I, and frankly, and that's how I can sell it to my business folks. Listen, yes, the partner is a thousand bucks an hour. The associates minuscule of that, but he is very efficient. Believe me, trust me, it'll be more effective than if we went to a smaller firm or a firm that won't let an associate work on it. This will be better. And it has generally turned out to be the case. And it gives security to my ownership that they do have this very significant, weighty, experienced person opining at the right time. It doesn't have to be all the time. It's where it's at that moment. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And it's interesting. I've had people on the business side say, 
once you get to these partners in many of these firms, they're all terrific, right? So they're all really good. And they are probably, in many cases, worth what they're billing and more, right? So, but, you know, that way of structuring how you're going to work with them is critical. We've talked about cost and value a bit. Obviously, we started the conversation on technology and the fact that there are these tools out there and there's different ways you can get access to those tools. And, you know, terrific that your firm has made the decision that you, with strong technical people, you can go direct to those suppliers. That said, as you're looking at the, either the legal tech market, the legal outsourcing market, what are you seeing that you would consider is truly innovative that's going on today? What's interesting is about the management of information is the key. It used to be that law firms were the only ones that get access to information. Well, now everybody basically can. Anybody can get on and get a case or whatnot. That being said, that means there's a heck of a lot of information out there that I feel incumbent that I should be finding and knowing. And the valuable firms are the ones that have a ways of calling that information and bringing it to me that they know that I need it. So I'll have my labor and employment firms will regularly ding me with what I need to know. It's all accessible, but they make it really condensed, quick way for me to get it. And each of my specialists do that for me. So that's really saves my time. Now, in-house, we have a lot of more management systems, I think, that have been you know, available. Overusing technology also is not helpful. That I don't like to overuse technology as well. I think that technology can be a trap where you start I only like to use email for confirmations. And if it's going to be a text, there's a purposeful means. I mean, text like actually document. So I still prefer the call. I still prefer some of the old school stuff because I think you get better understanding and information when you actually have that conversation. And it's likely time savings as well, right? Because you're getting on, you're able to have that. It's not a flat discussion right there. You're able to respond and react. So let me ask, have you started to use any project planning, either joint with the outside firms that you're working with, where you're both accessing a project planning tool or a project management tool? Is that part of your world? It seems still fairly siloed. I would appreciate that, frankly. And I do see amongst the firms tremendous differentials in their technological capacity and understanding. Some are just so much more with it and do share things with me to an extent. I would like more of that because I feel if they already have the systems and they can just hook me in for whatever they need, that is fabulous. There's other firms which are really behind and you can see it. You can really feel it. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, and we hear about it because they're they're definitely getting that label of not bleeding, usually bleeding edge, but leading edge as far as their use and incorporation of technology. And frankly, then turning around to their clients and using that as a reason to continue to work with them because they are more efficient because of it. They are able to give some of that savings back to the client, you know, through those tools. Of course, there's a cost to the tools, but, you know, once that's absorbed. It's very hard for me. We have a lot of um, vendors, right? So we have CIOs that need to be reviewed. We may have non-disclosure agreements and there are technologies out there where you can run these through certain kinds of platforms. I would love to partner with a law firm to say, okay, fine, you have this, whatever the system that you may have that can readily look for limits or whatever it may be. So I don't bear the whole cost of it. That kind of innovation would be really neat because we have to start buying these ourselves. And if we could leverage the efficiency of volume amongst other clients, that would be a very interesting thing for me as an in-house. Absolutely. You know, I went to a talk, not at this year's Legal Week, but last year's Legal Week, and it was a 
a group and there was a legal operations professional. The general counsel was Ricardo Anzaldua from MetLife. And then the head of DLA Piper, the head of DLA Piper was saying, I love the fact that in-house legal is now buying all this technology because they've just inherited the problems that we're having and rolling out this technology and training people and keeping it up to date. And he says, it just basically says, you know, we can do that for many clients. So as a firm, if we focus on getting and testing and implementing strong technology, and then having our clients really tap into it, it makes sense for everyone. And it's interesting. He actually said that more than 50% of their employees were, they were not lawyers, they were technologists. They had that many technical people and project managers. And there's a whole trend that direction, which really for those lawyers that are starting out, that are new partners in firms or on the partner track, for our listeners who are tuning in, what advice would you have for them? Because of course, their world is going to be very different than the world that the lawyers that they're likely talking to really matriculated through. Yeah, I would say that the solos, they're very attractive, but a firm like mine, which does a billion a year, I have no problem using smaller firms because I think I'm going to get better attention and partnership. And I don't mind being part of their growth because we see them as ourselves because we started out one day with a dozen people and we get that. So those are definitely clients that would probably be more attractive for a smaller startup law firm. Look for those people and for those connections. And I would also say to those folks that most of your work, in my experience, comes from colleagues, meaning people around your level are the ones that are going to get you in the door. So keeping those relationships from law school, from your firms, from your local neighborhood, whatever that may be, those are the people who typically can help you. It's not to say always, but typically they're the ones that I will tap into more than anything. What are you doing? You're started. Okay, we'll give you a shot. And because I trust them, I know they're going to have my back. It's so interesting, right? There was a point made that if you see a person in your community and you know them from your community and they seem to be a good community person, you've witnessed how they associate with their family, how involved they are in different groups, you actually translate that to how they likely are in their career. Right. We're looking for common values. Our company is very based on families. It's very important. In our newsletters, we have everybody's baby pictures in there. And I would say my folks, and they do interact with attorneys, right? They're going to be subpoenas. There's going to be depositions, EBTs. They're going to, and they're going to be put off by someone that they can't relate to. So I do look for attorneys that I know my folks can relate to if they have to interact with them. And it's interesting, Lisa, because we often hear from our folks that we're interviewing, I want to work with someone that I can get along with because I'm going to be spending time with them, that we're going to be able to have this trusting relationship. You just said it, it has more to do with the people that they're going to be working with within your business, that they're going to be comfortable working with them. They trust you that you're picking the right person to work with them. I hear strong energy from you. I hear obviously commitment to what you're doing. What do you enjoy most about the work that you're doing? Oh, definitely the people. I mean, the work is interesting because it's when you're in-house, it's something new every minute and someone's walking in your office all the time. I had this problem, but that identification and helping that person through a problem, it's just fun. And it's, it's, a, it's a very personal thing. And I think that I even had that when I was in-house. I took a very personal interest in the success of whoever was my client's counterpart. And I just don't mean the company. I was dealing with often directly with business 
folks because I worked at a big firm, Skadden. So, you know, we would often have the business folks wanted to talk to us directly. I guess we were just too so expensive, I suppose. <laughs> and it was understanding what that particular employee was trying to achieve for them to be successful. And that's what had them keep calling me personally back. Nope, we want Lisa on this. I had to believe in how they were going business-wise. They're the business people. I don't take over their business role. I advise that kind of thing. So you respect your wheelhouse and you respect them and trust their own expertise to be able to take the information you're providing and make the right judgment because you're the legal component. You're not the business person. Well, no, it's a, it's a great point. And, you know, we often say that the business person should always, you know, obviously you want to go have your legal partner there with you, but there's times where the business decision, unless there's risk, right, is going to have to trump the legal decision, right? Unless there's something going on that has to be a give and take somewhat. And that's going back to that trust word, right? Where trust comes in. So Lisa, thank you. We appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? I just, you know, I think that the legal industry did have a real lack of people coming into it after the last Great Recession. And there was a lack of training and a lack of those mid-level folk. And I think that, and probably some insecurity in terms of what was happening in employment. Because of that, I think there's a great opportunity right now for people who do want to start new firms. And you can see movement, a lot of more movement in this moment in firms breaking up, blah, blah, blah. There's opportunity right now. And that means that if you wanted to start a new firm or grow your firm, I think right now is the time. Because if you go to some of the older stayed firms, they did not develop a lot of their junior associates. They had had a lack of them. And so that means their price point's not there. And maybe they don't have really what I would be looking for, which is I want some people who have the lower billing cycle who actually want to risk with me and are interested in that kind of partnership with me. So I think there's a real opportunity right now for those folks to take advantage of. We're hearing it every day that there's a lot of ways that you can be a lawyer today. There's a lot of organizations you can join, but taking advantage of the fact that it is a strong market for a small firm, a new partner to make an inroad at a company. That is a terrific last point. Lisa, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time.